Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. References, no matter how esoteric or obscure, were always understood between the two of us. Everything was like our own little inside joke. This program features the work of 2022 writer Danielle Hayden. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Why don't you tell me about your Jack Straw project? I'm working on an essay collection, which I call Entropy. These are all personal essays that explore an identity that I either hold presently or that I feel once defined me. And each essay bears a title that reflects these identities. So some examples include writer, traitor, quitter, mother, virgin, my mother's daughter, my father's daughter, and then there are others. So I've been sort of appraising my life and kind of ruminating about it and feeling a desire to, to write about it. And one day I was, I was driving and I happened to be listening to a physics talk. Contrary to popular belief, many writers are interested in <laughs> math and science. <laughs> Just want to dispel that myth right quick. Um, but anyway, so I'm listening to this, this physics talk and the, the speaker mentions entropy. And he mentioned it only briefly, but immediately I said, that's it. That's my title. It's something I hadn't really even thought about since high school and like AP chemistry, but I knew that was that was what I wanted to call my work. And of course, entropy is more complex and nuanced, but just, you know, in layman's terms, it's associated with disorder, randomness, and the uncertainty of, of a system. And so my writing kind of examines and dissects uh, the disorder and chaos of my life. The focus rests mainly on my, my 20s up until now, but I also am kind of mining memories from my youth. And I know I can come off as self-indulgent to write about oneself. And, you know, the term navel-gazing gets thrown around a lot these days, especially with women's writing. But, mm-hmm. but I talk about love and loss and alienation and fate and friendship. And, and these, these are not just my, the things that I'm confronting, but these are also universal themes. So the personal can also be universal. And, yeah, I write about other people and other things and other genres, but this entropy is the work that I am most urgently invested in right now. So I know you've mentioned that urgency uh, before in writing about this topic and writing about your identities. Was there a specific time that kind of triggered that urgency for you or has it been a buildup throughout your life? Hmm. I think it was really when I was in my late 20s. I mean, some of it was fueled by, you know, an existential crisis that's almost cliche at this point when you're about to turn 30 and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, but also there was just so much, so much going on in my life, you know, marital discord and I've been laid off from my job and I found myself pregnant at a time when I was realizing that I didn't 
I, I didn't even think I wanted to be a mother anymore. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm about to have a baby. And there was just a lot going on all at once, all in the same year. My stepfather died. And it was just like, oh, my goodness. You know, there's just, you know, they call it like a dark night of the soul. There was just, yeah, I was just kind of overwhelmed. And I was like, I need to, I need to write about this. So, you have these um, powerful lines in your artist statement I'd like to quote. Um, so, quote, I like to tell the truth in its ugliness and its beauty and where it lay suspended between the two. I confront realities of the human experience as I fumble my way through the labyrinths of life, bearing witness to my own shame and wonder and insecurity. Personally, I've always thought of witnessing as something you do externally, like you look out and witness someone else. But I love that you flip this here and you talk about witnessing yourself uh, can you talk to me about some of the challenges and maybe talk about some of the empowering things that can come from witnessing yourself? So I've always been very self-aware and introspective. And uh, like you said, it can be an empowering. Um, there are angles that I may not always see, but I'm always willing to look harder to find them. And I don't think everyone knows who they are, but I I feel like I know who I am. I know who this woman is, so I don't need to spend time trying to figure her out or even spend time apologizing for things that are not actually character flaws, but just part of who I am in the world. Like, for example, the fact that I'm sensitive. So there are some challenges, though, that come with witnessing oneself. You know, who I am is not always someone I'm proud of or pleased with so I can fall into kind of an emotional abyss if I'm not careful if I look in the mirror for too long but I'd rather not I'd rather not be ignorant of these of these realities you know it was Keats who said beauty is truth truth beauty that is all you know on earth and all you need to know and I don't fully agree with that because sometimes truth is is ugly and hideous and scary and awful but even even that I suppose is beautiful because it's it's real you know were there any uh, surprises you'd found when you began some of these essays like did you find your relationship to these identities kind of changing as you delved into them I guess I start to reflect more on my culpability in where I was or where I was not in life. And instead of viewing myself as a victim, I started to say, I don't know, really look more at myself and how I had brought a lot of things about. So that was, of course, not easy to reflect on, but it was powerful. And again, I want the truth, even if it's ugly. So that was, that was good to know, to be more self-aware, like, no, you screwed this up. This wasn't, this didn't happen to you. You did this. And that's such an important part, I think, of being a writer and growing as a person is just realizing where you were responsible and accountable to certain things. And it's, it is a difficult thing to do. Because, mm -hmm. Oh, it would be so much better just to be like, yep, I'm pretty awesome and perfect. <laughs> right. I'm sorry, you all suck. Right. <laughs> So as a writer and a parent myself, I often think of writing as kind of an inheritance that we're going to give, whether it's an audience or eventually our children or read it. Is there something in particular that you want to leave for an audience or for a reader? You know, it sounds so trite, but just to reaffirm the idea that they're not alone. 
So that's kind of what I want to impart on because I'm, I'm talking about some things that are taboo, some of these subjects, but there are other people who feel like I feel. And so I want to kind of say, hey, you're not the only one. Now we'll hear a selection from Danielle's live reading. My father's mistress had a husky voice. I don't recall what her exact words were when I picked up the phone, but whatever she said made me keep listening. I was just about to call a classmate. But instead of a dial tone, I heard a tone so unlike my mother's, speaking to dad about things that no fifth grader should be privy to. I was not ignorant of adults' participation in the carnal, but I did not expect to hear this. I want to pour wine all over you, said the man I had revered only five minutes ago. It was horrific, the swift, stabbing realization of his infidelity and the questioning of all I once knew. Worse still was the shame of my arousal creeping in as I found myself ensnared by their clandestine exchange. I paused for a moment to consider what a hellish cleanup it would be to remove Merlot off of a bedspread. And then I thought of her body, sticky and stained. I stretched the cord of the phone to sit down, careful not to make any noise. I was on the futon where our family of four had always sat, together, unbroken, in the once secure cove of the den, and I kept listening, 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 cradling the phone to my ear while my father spoke downstairs, imagining what she looked like, how they might have met, wondering how my nearly perfect parent could be doing this, part of me still clinging to some microscopic possibility that this aural revelation was no revelation at all, but some sort of misunderstanding. Ours was a household of pairs, two boys, two girls, two dogs, two cats. This woman did not fit. I stayed with them until the end. Once they concluded the first in a series of conversations to which I would be a silent third party, I waited a little while before I drifted downstairs with leaden legs. There was my father, sitting in his black chair, reading the newspaper, as he always did. In between the cursed sounds of turning pages, he made a rhythmic beat with his ringed hand. It was one of his many habits, born from a life of music, done absent-mindedly. His world had not just shattered. The clang of his gold band against the table leg echoed like a death knell. Hey, Dad, I greeted him. The voice was quiet, even for me. I gingerly took my usual place at the table. A courage to confront lay suspended in air. I could not look at him right away. When I did so, it was to peer at him as if for the first time. Hey, kiddo, he replied with that same smile on his face and gleam in his eye as he looked at me, his only daughter. For a while, at least, I would remain his favorite girl. As I had always been, two peas in a pod, daddy's girl. Pick any hackneyed phrase you like that is subject to Freudian analysis. He and I had been that. I had developed early on a preference for the company of my father over my mother. After all, it was in his shadow, not hers, that I always felt safe, 
fun, free. But it was more than the mere closeness of kin. He and I bonded intellectually. It was he who taught me to read and gave me a lifelong adoration of the practice. I explored mythology early on and sometimes likened myself to Athena in reference to her being born directly from Zeus's head. A cerebral connection between father and daughter only strengthened our familial bond, and it was with mutual respect that we valued each other's keen mind and sharp wit. References, no matter how esoteric or obscure, were always understood between the two of us. Everything was like our own little inside joke, especially since no one ever expected the scruffy fellow in multicolored pants to be the smartest guy in the room. But the inside joke had mutated and had become just a secret. Over the years, my parents had been functional, usually polite, occasionally even romantic. But moments of mirth had gradually slowed their pace, then ceased altogether. My parents just stopped laughing one day. My mother stopped first. She ground her teeth at night. Her hair was falling out. I saw the tag of her green dress. She had dropped down to a size two. I was young, but I noticed this erosion of self, the shrinking and disappearing. I wondered even then if that was what it was to be a wife, to shrink all your parts into something smaller. What then did it mean in my family to be a husband? She was expressive with me, but with others she had learned to bite her tongue. I wondered sometimes how she bore with grace the acrid taste of blood. I, too, learned to go within. For most of my life, I had not used my voice either. This was my inheritance. After I discover my father's affair, I reveal nothing to him for months, and thus I remain. It is uncomfortable concealing the truth, but I have to choose my dad over myself. I know no other way. Many days I did not think about it, but it is always in the back of my mind. I do not know what to say, how to say it, or if I should say anything at all. I know it is wrong, but I am afraid. I know it is wrong, but he is my favorite person. One morning over breakfast, I tell him I am upset. He asks why. I offer a name, her name. I'm staring into my oatmeal. You're upset because I have a friend that's not your mother? I face him, my eyes narrowed like knife slits. I'm upset that you have a girlfriend who's not my mother. From his mouth begins to flow the careful consonants of denial. Don't lie, I command. It is wholly unfamiliar, this timbre of my voice. He admits it, but insists my mother wouldn't really want to know. I almost roll my eyes, but I know that I must protect him. I have lived 10 winters, that is old enough for fealty. And not too long after, he tells me he has ended the affair. For more than a year, I continue keeping it secret. I had already planned to stay quiet and take this secret to my grave, even if he had continued his philandering. And I would have, all if it weren't for middle school. I hear the distant doors of a school bus hiss to a close as I walk into Bates Academy to begin the sixth grade in 1999. I'm immediately out of place. Cliques are already established, as most of the kids there knew each other for previous years. We wear a uniform, but as you and I are well aware, adolescents are particularly adept at creating new social hierarchies within purported homogeneity. I have the brains for the school, but not the braces with bright bands. No breasts, either. 
I'm from the wrong side of town, and I don't even know what a coach handbag is, let alone why all the it girls seem to be carrying one. The politics of junior high are largely fixed, and they are cruel. My science teacher is the biggest bully of all, and unkind only to me, and one other girl named Maya. Like me, Maya is reserved. Like me, Maya retreats. I bring home straight A's anyway, but despite my unblemished grade point average, the first few months are rough, and I cry every morning on the way to school. I eat lunch alone, though my appetite is practically non-existent anyway. I beg to change schools and go where most of my friends attended after fifth grade. For once, my mother sympathizes with me, but she says that she and my father will decide. Ultimately, it is he who refuses me, telling me that Bates will offer great opportunities and I need to stick it out for at least the remainder of the school year. I've had his back, and he cannot reach out his hand to save me while I'm drowning. I had never before, and have never since, danced with vengeance. But that day I turn on him, 11 years old and furious. You owe me, I yell from the back seat. What is she talking about, Joe? asked my mother. There is an edge to her voice, alarm intermingled with confusion. I freeze. I have said too much on impulse from this scream that wrenched itself from my throat, viscerally, violently. The die is cast, as Caesar once said. Now my dad is exposed, as am I, but I insist to my mom that it's nothing. I remain quiet for the rest of the car ride, but I do not let it go. I begin dropping hints to my mother about my father's past indiscretion. I lack the moxie to tell her outright, but if I continue to suffer at school, then I feel that my father must somehow pay. I do muse that if I disclose to her at all, it should be because she deserves to know and because I love her. Instead, it is vengeance, not moral duty based off of a social contract, not filial piety, but vengeance that moves me to such frankness. The truth comes out because I am pissed at him, not loyal to her. I know this. My nuclear family knows this and how fucked up this is. Still, my mother seems pleased by this lone aspect, that I'm finally on her side, that she has found an ally in me for once. It is to be short-lived. My parents try counseling, to no avail. They separate when I'm 12. The divorce is finalized in November of my 13th year. I am strangely not destroyed by this. I still see my father nearly every day, and he quickly reclaims his position as my favorite. How easy it is to reconcile with him, how naturally it comes to me. It is almost effortless, even as I learned that over my parents' 20-year marriage, there were multiple other women, that my father was a libertine. My birth had changed him, he had always told me, but apparently I hadn't changed him in all the ways that mattered. At least now I fit in a little more at school. Almost no one's parents are still married and I have something to talk about. My mother leaves me alone more too, which is a welcome adjustment. Still, I do blame myself. Not in that way that children in peer-reviewed psychology articles are expected to, but in the way that stems from my having been the catalyst for things to fall apart. I visit dad at his new apartment after he moves out. It is an old high rise on Woodward Avenue with modest furnishings. I wonder if he is lonely, especially on holidays, even after he starts dating again. My mother's family won't speak to him, and I feel guilty that he is in this situation. 
When I am 16, I come home from school to learn he's had a stroke and is in the hospital. He hadn't been taking his blood pressure medication. Too expensive. He's a bass player and my mother had been the breadwinner. Dexterity in his right hand has suffered and for years he can no longer play music. His band breaks up. I'm crushed by the weight of my guilt. If only I hadn't said anything, my dad would probably be okay. And he is still so kind to me. He does not seem to blame me at all. I'm sure he's felt angry, but not once was he spiteful or even mean. I question how he can show such unconditional love to the kid who had ratted him out. How can he be so welcoming when we hang out in his apartment, the apartment I felt I had put him in? I had ruined his life by being a snitch. My parents' separation, that itself, was bearable. But the fact that I had precipitated the separation, this is something I still carry now. I am better, and my dad has implored me to release this burden. But it follows me everywhere, along with my awareness of his mortality, which I've long felt that I hastened with my decision. So I'm still angry with myself, but I knew I didn't want to and couldn't stay angry with my dad. He is flawed, but he is my father. He is forgiven. As painful as that period was, his fall from grace helped me see him as human, complex, and multifaceted and fallible as we all are. I had known that he was imperfect, certainly. I had observed and even documented in my diary his peccadilloes, his uncouth sayings in social situations, his irascible impatience while driving, his questionable sartorial choices. All of those things were unfavorable attributes that I could have done without. But I definitely had him on a pedestal, and that phone call altered my life forever. But we were able to heal, and I will always love him. We remain close. My first tattoo was for him. He walked me down the aisle. We talk. We visit. We laugh. And I'm proud to be my father's daughter. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>